Well, good morning, everyone. If you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful for me and for you uh, if you could open that up to the passage that we had read, Luke chapter 15. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of uh, a very familiar part of the Bible, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. And you can find that on page 1048, 1048 in the Bibles. Let me pray before we uh, look at this passage together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your spirit continues to speak through the words of the Bible. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that whether we're new to these things or whether we've been following you for many years now, we pray that you would give us an understanding of what it is that you're teaching us. And we pray this morning that we would meet with Jesus. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, Think about a time uh, in your life when you have lost something that was very valuable to you. Uh, Maybe it was your wallet with all your cards in it, or uh, maybe it was an expensive ring at the bottom of a pool, something like that. Maybe it was a child. If it was, don't admit that. And now try and remember the feeling you had whenever that thing that was lost was found. I'm sure all of us, if we were to go around this morning, could tell of stories of something that was precious to us that we lost, and then we could tell about how we found it, and that feeling of pure joy whenever we find that very precious thing. And our passage this morning is a passage that all of us, I think, can relate to, because it's not a story about a lost wallet or a lost ring or a lost child. It's ultimately a story that Jesus teaches about lost people. Uh, The two stories that Jesus tells, uh, they're not here to, to give us tips on how to find things. They're just teaching us about the fact that God goes searching for lost people, and he rejoices when he finds them. Let me say something just before we get into the parable uh, itself. What we have here in Luke chapter 15 is remarkably simple teaching. And yet, even though it's simple, it's not simplistic. Uh, Jesus uses two images, one of a a shepherd who goes in search of a lost sheep and one of a a woman who goes in search of a lost coin. Uh, These are stories that the youngest among us and the oldest can understand. They're really, really simple stories and yet they're not simplistic. Just because they're clear and simple doesn't mean that they're not profound. Uh, I think we have a bit of a habit, don't we, in our culture of uh, assuming that if something sounds really complicated, if we go out of uh, a lecture or talk or something and we don't have the foggiest notion of what was being talked about, we, we think that it was really profound. But actually, what we have here is clear and simple, and it's profound. Jesus, the Son of God, Uh, the one who knew all things, uh, he spoke in words that even children could understand. Uh, His teaching here is amazingly clear, but we need to make sure that we don't relegate it or dismiss it as having nothing to say to us uh, this morning. Uh, Sometimes I think we can approach a passage like Luke chapter 15, and we think that the only reason it's in the Bible, the only reason God has given us this chapter, is so that the kids have something to color in at Sunday school. And so this morning, if you're still mentally coloring in a picture of a sheep in your head, can I encourage you to put the crayons down? Because actually, Jesus is talking here about the nature of reality. He is talking about something here that is so important that if we as Christians can get it clear in our thinking, it will transform how we view life itself. If you're taking notes this morning, our first heading Verses 1 and 2, we're going to think about Jesus' audience. Verses 1 and 2, 
Jesus' uh, audience. In order to get the full impact of this parable, this passage, we've got to set Jesus' teaching uh, in its context. We've got to think about where are we in Luke's gospel? Sometimes when you watch a TV series, they have that little clip at the start, and it says, previously in, whatever it is you're watching, and then they give you a synopsis of what has gone before. What's gone before in Luke's gospel is that Jesus has been having a series of conversations, and it's all been about the topic of who will get in to God's kingdom. That's the question. That's what this whole section of Luke is about. Who will get in to God's kingdom? And in Luke chapter 13, two chapters before, Jesus is asked a question by people. They come to him and they say, will those who are saved be few? In other words, when it comes to God's kingdom, will there be many people in it or will there be few people in it? And Jesus gave a really shocking answer. He said this, he said, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter the kingdom and will not be able. So when it comes to God's kingdom, says Jesus, it's not as easy to get in as many people assume. The door, says Jesus, is narrow. It's exclusive. And that is, I think, a shocking message, isn't it, for our culture, that not everyone is going to heaven. In this section of his gospel, Luke wants us to see that when it comes to this question of who gets in to God's kingdom, Really, there are two groups of people, and it's still the same today. On the one hand, we've got those who assume that they will get into the kingdom, and on the other hand, we've got those who assume that they won't. So we've got those who assume they will get into the kingdom. Uh, There are the Pharisees and the scribes. You can see them at verse 1 and 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes, as they come to Jesus in chapter 15, they are certain that they will be in God's kingdom on the basis of their own religious performance and pedigree. They're from the right place and they do the right things. And yet Jesus, in the last few chapters before this one, he has given them the shock of their lives. He said, you won't be welcome with your arrogant assumption that you're okay with God. So that's those who assume they will, the Pharisees and scribes, but also verse one and two, we see those who assume they won't. And they are called the sinners and the tax collectors. In other words, the non-religious people. So we get these two groups of people when it comes to God's kingdom, those who think they'll be in and perhaps get a surprise that they won't, and those who never imagined that they would be invited and yet who are invited. You'll see from the opening verses of Luke chapter 15 that it's these unexpected people who are drawing near to Jesus while the religious figures are grumbling. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners. He even eats with them. I think we can understand something of the grumbling, the kind of muttering of the Pharisees and the tax collectors, or the Pharisees and the scribes. We all understand that there are some things in life that you have to be competent in order to be part of it. So think of a a popular TV program like Strictly Come Dancing. Uh, We all enjoy, don't we, watching that disaster candidate who can't dance, but at some point in the competition, it gets to the point when it's coming close to the final where you think to yourself, what on earth is he or she still doing in this competition? They don't deserve to be here. They're not competent. They can't dance. Uh, We understand by nature the idea that some things are exclusive. It's only for the few 
and it's only for the best. And sometimes we can think to ourselves, well, maybe the kingdom of heaven is like that. You know, not everyone can get in. It's only for the best. But then we see in this passage that it's the very, very best, or at least those who thought they were, that discover that it's actually the very worst who are friends with Jesus and who belong in the kingdom. And that does not go down well. Uh, The religious leaders are furious that Jesus could be welcoming these people, these kind of people who are clearly and demonstrably morally inferior to them. After all that Jesus has said in the chapters before this, about how it's not easy to get into the kingdom, of how there will be few people, of how the, the, the gate is narrow, of how it's hard to get in, why is he welcoming these kind of people? How on earth could they make it into God's kingdom? How is that even possible? And so Jesus tells two stories, two parables, to explain exactly how that is possible. Jesus says they got in because God looked for them and found them and brought them in. They got in not because they were looking for God, but because he was looking for them. Jesus is going to tell us in this parable what has to happen for a person to get in to God's kingdom. And if you're anything like me this morning, I'm guessing that you want to know how that is possible. And so here's the first big thing that Jesus teaches us uh, from these stories. We've looked at his audience, but if you're taking notes, here's the, the first big truth. And that is that God seeks after lost people. God seeks after lost people. Look at verses three and four. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And then look at verse eight. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? God goes seeking for lost people, and that is how all sorts of people make it into the kingdom. That is how they get through the door, because God went looking and found them. I'm always struck by the imagery of these two uh, parables, these two images, because if you think about it, a sheep does not return to its owner, and neither does a lost coin. I wish coins would return to me when I lose them, but they show no sign of wanting to return to their owner. And all the emphasis in these two stories is on human inability, but God's initiative. God is the one who goes searching. It's not the sheep and it's not the coin. Let's have a think about each of these images uh, in turn. First, let's think about the sheep and that image. I suspect that when you were younger, a sheep would not be your first choice animal. If you were asked what animal in the world could you be, Uh, No one picks a sheep. Maybe you think, I'll pick a lion because they're strong, impressive. Or you think, I'll pick a fox because they're they're crafty. But sheep, no one picks a sheep. Sheep are not very impressive. Uh, What do we tell our children when they can't sleep? We tell them to think about sheep because sheep are utterly harmless. It's the least scary animal in the world. And yet, if you think about sheep as well, uh, sheep are defenseless. They don't have any claws. They can't bark. If a sheep gets separated from its flock and it gets lost in the wild, that is a very dangerous thing for a sheep. And so when Jesus likens us, when he likens you and I to sheep, 
He's not trying to flatter us. Another interesting thing I've learned about sheep is that they don't return when the owner shows up, but actually what they do is they run around in a panicked frenzy. So one uh, biblical commentator, Kenneth Bailey, he says this. He says, a sheep, when it's lost, is terrified and will sit down while shaking and bleeding. When found, it is in such a state of nervous collapse that it can't stand. It literally needs picked up and carried to restore it to the fold. And Jesus says, you and I, spiritually speaking, are like sheep. We are lost and we are in danger and we are utterly helpless. Other religions will tell you, you're not like a sheep, you're a bit more like a cat or a dog. You just need a bit of guidance, a bit of training. Once you receive some good teaching, some good advice, you'll find your way back to God. But the gospel says, no, you're not a dog, you're not a, you're not a cat. You don't need training, you don't need advice. You're a sheep. And what you need more than anything is to be rescued. You need picked up and you need brought home. And Jesus is teaching that God seeks after sinners, just like a shepherd seeks after a sheep and the woman looks for the coin. Uh, there's nothing that the sheep or the coin can do to be found. They are utterly dependent on the one who comes seeking them. And yet, this is not how the world likes to think about spirituality, is it? Uh, many people in today's world, uh, they tend to think about life and spirituality very differently to how Jesus did. Uh, they would like to take the parable of the lost sheep and they would like to switch it and change it into the parable of the lost shepherd. Uh, they take Jesus' teaching here and they flip it on its head and they would have us rewrite this story a bit like this. So imagine the sheep in the field and they're all talking to each other. They say, you know, have you seen the shepherd? You go that way to the fence, I'll go this way. Let's see if we can find this silly shepherd who's gone and got himself lost. And so the sheep find the shepherd and the sheep rejoice, we've found the shepherd. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet that is how modern people tend to think about spirituality. The world says that we are seeking God, uh, that God is hiding. And yet Jesus says it's completely the other way around. Uh, we are the ones who hide and God is the one who comes seeking us. And that is the picture that we get throughout the Bible. I think back right to the beginning, the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they rebel, they sin against God, they mess up. And what do they do? Do they seek out God to confess their sin and tell him what they've done? Absolutely not. They hide. They hide from God, but graciously God seeks them and removes their shame. And you and I are born with that same condition of Adam and Eve. We are born naturally wanting to hide from God. We want to hide our sin from God because deep down we all fear our sin being exposed before him. You remember how John describes it in his gospel. He says, light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so this teaching of Jesus, it kind of debunks the notion of this human quest for God. In these verses, there's no evidence of a human search for God. In fact, the opposite is the case. And the entire story of the Bible could be summarized as God's long-suffering search 
for rebels who hide for him. And so Jesus wants us to be absolutely clear in our thinking. It is God who comes seeking lost people. It's not the other way around. So let me ask you this morning, which version of reality, which version of spirituality do you believe? Do you believe that life is the parable of the lost sheep? Do you believe that life is the parable of the lost shepherd? Do you believe that God is hiding from us? Or do you believe that we are hiding from him? Why is this teaching relevant? Why is it so important? Well, it's important when we're trying to share our faith with someone. Because this is the reality of what we're facing as we seek to tell people about who Jesus is. We need to beware those who say to us that, you know, it's never been their fortune to find persuasive enough evidence for being a Christian. I remember having someone say to me, you know, I'd, I'd love to believe, I'd love to be a Christian, but there just simply isn't enough evidence to believe it. Jesus says, no, that's not the case at all. He says, all people are like lost sheep, and all people are hiding from God. So in summary, we've got the seeking shepherd, the searching woman, they represent God. The lost sheep and the lost coin, they represent us. And apart from God, we are helpless and we are hopeless. But God is the searching God. He loves to find us. And when he finds us, he parties. That leads us to our second heading. God rejoices. God rejoices when he finds one lost person. Do you recall the reaction of the shepherd and the woman whenever they find what it was that they were looking? What was the reaction? Well, the reaction was pure joy. They are so happy to find what they did. Look at verses 5 to 7. Jesus says, And when he, the shepherd, finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Look at verse 9. And when she, the woman, finds the coin, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, The conclusion of each successful search is rejoicing and celebration. But here's the question, who is it? Who is it that is doing the celebrating, the celebration in uh, verse 10? Look at verse 10 again. It says, in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's not that the angels are celebrating while God sits back and he kind of tolerates the party that's going on. Do you notice verse 10? The joy is in the presence of the angels, or literally it's translated before the angels. The angels are spectators because God is the one himself who is celebrating. I remember being at a a wedding of a very close friend, and if you knew my my friend, uh, you would know that he's not a dancer. He's not the kind of person we'd get up on a a disco dance floor. In fact, he point-blank refused at any wedding we'd ever been to. But on his wedding day, uh, he was up, and he was dancing like Bruno. Uh, He was so overcome with joy at being united to his beautiful wife that he could not help but celebrate before everyone, in the presence of everyone. 
When God is reunited with one lost person, he rejoices and he does it before the angels in heaven. Just let that sink in this morning. The angels stop to watch the joy of God. Isn't that stunning? God is ecstatic when one person, one person, comes into a living relationship with him. This is the God who has a universe to run. This is the God who has galaxies to uphold, atomic particles to manage. This is the the God who has governments to rule in his providence. And yet this God takes joy in one sinner who repents and comes to saving faith. We're not told about God's joy about an election result. We're not told about God's joy over who wins a World Cup. But we are told about God's joy when one person who was hiding from him is found and their life is turned around. What Jesus is doing when he uses these pictures of a celebrating shepherd and a joyful woman, what he's doing is he's giving us an insight into the very heart of God. God's all-consuming passion is to find the lost. And do you notice that God, in this story, is the very opposite of the Pharisees? Do you see that? Do you notice the contrast of the joy in heaven, verse 10, with the grumbling, verse 2, the muttering of the religious leaders on earth? Heavenly joy and earthly grumbling. What a difference. These people, the religious leaders, they were the spiritual shepherds of Israel. And yet they did not give a rip about the lost sheep, especially if those lost sheep were not the kind of respectable sheep that they were used to associating with. But in contrast, here comes Jesus, the good shepherd himself. And he could not care more about the sheep. He leaves the 99 and he risks everything for the lost sheep. Heaven is turned upside down to find the lost coin. Of course, friends, we know, don't we, the extent to which Jesus went to find us. Jesus was the shepherd who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus went to the cross at Calvary, and on that cross, he was forsaken. He was lost so that we could be found. Jesus took on himself our lostness so that you and I may never be lost. So let me finish by speaking to two groups of people uh, this morning. Uh, Firstly, to those like the religious leaders who assume that they're okay with God. Uh, We've seen from our passage that not everyone accepted Jesus' version of reality. The Pharisees were not willing to recognize themselves as lost and and in need of rescue. Uh, They were self-righteously expecting assuming that they'd be in the kingdom. And for them, God was, you know, an example, a model, even their boss, but he wasn't their savior. God was fulfilling before them his plan of finding the lost. And yet the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they are against what God is for. And therefore, they are the ones who are lost. Those who assume they're okay with God and yet aren't. But then there'll be those among us this morning, and those maybe among, maybe you're one of them, who imagine that you'd never be welcome in God's kingdom. Even now, you're coming up with reasons in your mind why God would want nothing to do with you. 
Well, Jesus teaches that a person is brought into God's kingdom when God seeks them and finds them and brings them home. The gospel says that God has sought us in his son, the Lord Jesus. And his great desire for you this morning is that you would turn to Jesus in faith and that you would have your life turned around. The reality is you are helpless. There's nothing that you can do in your own strength, but he has come looking for you. And through his death on the cross in your place, all that is required for you to enter has been achieved. And Jesus can bring you home to his kingdom forever. I read a story uh, a while back about a child who was out with his grandpa. And the grandpa turned around to the child after a long day trip. And he said to his grandson, where are we? And the grandson said, I don't know. And he said, do you know what that street over there is? And the grandson said, no, I don't. And he said, do you know how far you are from your house? And the grandson said, no, I don't. I don't know how far. And the grandpa turned to his grandson and he said, that's because you're lost. And the grandson said something that I think is really profound. He turned around to his grandpa and he said, but grandpa, how could I be lost when I'm with you? And you know, that is the point of what Jesus is teaching. Being lost is not so much a question of where you are. It's a question of who you're with. It is possible to be in church, to be in the right place at the right time, and yet not to be with the right person, the shepherd of your soul, the Lord Jesus. It is possible to be in all the wrong places, at all the wrong times, doing all the wrong things, and yet to turn to Jesus and to be with him as the shepherd of your soul. It's who you're with that matters. Jesus says that God comes searching. He comes seeking for lost people. And when he finds one lost person, he rejoices before the angels in heaven. And so maybe this Easter time, as you've heard the story of Jesus and what he's done for you, maybe you are that lost person who's been wandering in your own heart and mind. And maybe it's time to turn back to the shepherd who has come in search of you. Let's pray as we finish. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you that it is so simple, it is so clear, and yet it is so profound. Lord, we acknowledge, like like Adam and Eve, we are born with this condition where we want to hide our sin, we want to live in the dark, and yet in the gospel, you invite us to step into the light and to be received by you as the good shepherd, the one who has come searching for us and the one who went to the cross on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you would help us to come to you this morning, to come back to you this morning. For Lord, we know that you rejoice when we turn and when we repent and we come to you. And so Lord, we pray that daily you would help us to turn back to you, that you would help us to stay close to you. For we ask us in Jesus' name, amen.